What's what's the greatest adjustment you've made having lived up north? Oh, probably getting used to doing all the driving by myself and just having those long drives. Every gig I do is on the road now. (laughs) (laughs) I guess there's nothing in the neighborhood? Uh, Not really. You know, I mean, I play... uh, couple shows in Campbellford or Belleville and you know they're maybe like half an hour to an hour away but uh, there's not a lot to do around where I'm living right so like today you're doing Godrich so it's not one well, that's three hours from here yeah well it's not quite in Godrich there's a, a little concert series in a tiny town called Brussels okay. Ontario and so, you know, when I go out, I try and just book a couple things together. So I've got uh, a house concert in London the next night. So, oh, so you don't come home? No. Okay, good. <laughs> I just thought that, that would make for a long day. It's still going to be a 15 or 17 hour day by the time I hit the pillow. But Yeah. And how are you finding that? I mean, I guess, no, we'll get into this a little later. All right. Um, let's start with how music first got to you? How did you first recognize music? Well, I remember my older sister was a huge Elvis fan and I don't know why, but I would go in the basement and my dad had a record player set up down there and I would take her 45s and I was really drawn to the B-sides of a lot of his records, which I mean, I didn't put that together then, but he was doing like blues tunes, you know, so that hit me really early on. So can you explain that? So automatically you would just flip to the B side? Well, you'd listen to both sides and, you know, I'd think, you know, like, oh, this song's good, but the B side's even better. (laughs) And, you know, I realized it's like, wow, it's those three chord blues tunes, you know, that were really resonating with me. And then I remember in grade six, we had moved from Port Colborne to Toronto and I was in a new school and we listened to a record that was all about music and you know it talked about you know oh Mozart and his chubby little fingers would play this and and eventually they got to one part where uh, they said and then there was the blues and I think uh I think it was a Lil Green song, Yellow Dog Gal Blues, you know, one of those old 20s or early 30s blues tunes. And there was just something about it that, uh, again, really hit a chord with me. And How old would you have been? 11. And then uh, at that same age, my soon-to-be brother-in-law took me down to Yorkville to the riverboat to hear Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and, you know, shortly after that, Muddy Waters. And, you know, I, I mean, I saw a lot of, you know, acoustic Delta blues players. Uh, I saw Buddy Guy playing at the riverboat with a little trio, you know, I mean, and the riverboat was just a small, long, narrow coffee house. And there was just something about that music that uh, it just really struck me as like, wow, this is really being honest. But I mean, at the same time, I was a huge Beatle nut, you know, I mean, right. I saw them on Ed Sullivan and I rem- I can remember that day, you know, we were visiting uh, friends in Buffalo, which was just across the bridge from Port Colburn. 
and uh, I remember there was it might have been Life magazine or something and I just seeing their pictures for the first time it sounds so weird to say now but I mean they look so different yeah, there was yeah. just something that as a kid you thought wow this is pretty cool and I wouldn't mind being like them so I had that whole British invasion thing going on in my childhood plus blues that I was seeing in person. I mean, I remember when I saw Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee the first time, when they finished their set and walked up to their dressing room, like, I just, without even thinking, I just followed them up and ended up in their dressing room. And, you know, I was hearing, like, these guys swearing at each other. And I, and I thought, like, wow, you know, I've been around older people and, you know, my folks don't swear. This is... <laughs> You know, it was kind of dangerous and exciting. And and I remember asking Brandy McGee, I said, wow, you just must make so much money out on the road doing this. And, you know, he just laughed and made, <laughs> made some kind of comment. That's neat, though. And you saw them like 40 times or something. Yeah. Right? So they were a big influence. Yeah. And, I mean, this is how thrilled I was and you know it's like when you when you're young and you discover something you know in your entire scope of things you know really your scope is not that wide at all at 11 or 12 13 years old and you know so that got to be my thing to do is like Sonny Terry and Brian McGee's coming to the riverboat for a week you know I'll have enough allowance money saved up to see them once but that's not enough. So I used to go down and just sit on the back steps with my ear to the door and, and listen. And this is how dumb I was. Like I used to go an hour and a half early thinking that, oh, there's probably going to be some other kid that's going to take that spot on the steps. <laughs> you know, no one ever did. But uh, I remember sometimes in the winter, you know, when it would be freezing rain and I'd be shivering out there, you know, Bernie Fiedler that owned the place, you know, he'd be going out the back door taking some garbage out to the alley and he'd go like Jesus Christ kid are you still here it's like come on in and get warm and you know like he there used to be uh it was just like a couple steps level you know that the back tables were on along the long wall and uh you know, they faced right at the stage. So he just, he'd just say, just sit on the steps and watch the show. So, I mean, I'd be as close to them as I was to you. And, you know, they, they were just amazing. And, and, you know, having seen them so many times, you know, some nights Brownie would really be, uh, so magnetic, you know, and, and personable. And you'd think, wow, I'd, I'd like to play guitar and be like Brownie McGee. Well, I, at that time, I thought, geez, I just wish I was Brownie McGee. And then other nights, he would be kind of grumpy, and Sonny would be really on and funny and personable, and you'd go, wow, I want to be like him. And and then, you know, on those occasions where they were both on, it's just, it's hard to think of anything better that I've ever seen. Like, when both those guys were on, you know, like... And at the time, I guess they'd been playing together 35 years or 40 years. Man, they were just amazing. So at what point did, did the harmonica or the guitar come into your life? Was it based on that? Uh, yeah, my brother-in-law bought me a harmonica uh, 
the first time he took me out to see them and just said, here, you should play this one day. And, uh, you know, guitar, I think, kind of goes more back to the Beatle thing, you know, because I remember, I guess in 64, when they were on Ed Sullivan, I was 10 years old. So, you know, I remember cutting out cardboard guitars that looked like their guitars, you know, and... And, you know, just putting a piece of wood at the end and pretending I was playing along with the records. And, you know, probably by the time I was in grade six, I remember uh, I got a real cheap guitar for my birthday that uh, my mom was hiding under the bed. It was a Suzuki. I think they were $20, which was a considerable amount of money in, you know, 1965 or 66 and, uh, oh God, I discovered that under my mom's bed weeks before my birthday and I was playing it every day and, you know, and then practicing being surprised when my actual birthday came. It's like, wow, a guitar. Great. And did you take to it easily? Um, I first took a couple lessons and I'm a left-handed right person and I play guitar left-handed and they first made me turn it around and play right-handed and it just frustrated me so I quit taking lessons but then I just picked it up on my own and what kind of stuff were you playing Beatles or were you playing oh you know I would probably try and play a couple Beatles songs you know easy things and you know, maybe some Elvis things or, or, you know, I think back in those days, I would probably just learn, you know, one little riff like do, 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 do. And, you know, you would play that all day long and, you know. <laughs> did you get in a band immediately? Uh, we did have a little band that, I mean, we never played anywhere once we had a party and we played it. And, you know, I mean, I think... Uh, we used to, I think we maybe had two songs. So, I mean, we would just play them over and over again because that's what you did. Because, you know, back then everybody wanted to be in a band. Yeah, sure. And, you know, when I look at my career as a lifelong musician, you know, 40 or 45 years later, when I started out, all my friends were musicians now all my friends are retiring from lucrative jobs <laughs> and I'm still a musician. But, you know, I don't, I don't think I would trade that for anything. So at what point did you decide that music is what you were going to follow, what you wanted to, a musician is what you wanted to be? I remember, uh, I think it was 1971 or... I think when I was about 16 years old, the Muddy Waters Live album came out, Live at Mr. Kelly's. And on that album, Paul Osher's playing harmonica, and then a guy named Joe Denham that just knocked me out that turned out to be James Cotton, and they just changed his name for recording contract things. Uh... And I heard that, and there was, you know, because it was a live recording, you could just really feel the, uh, 
you know, the urgency of that music. And, and from then on, I, I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And, and I remember I was probably playing my harp, you know, easily eight hours a day, but it wasn't like sitting down and practicing, you know, it's like you're young and you're hanging out with friends that have similar ideas about their instruments, maybe piano or guitar. There was a, a guy at school named George Phelps that was a really good piano player. And we used to, you know, after school, just hang out and in the auditorium and play all these shuffles and things. And, you know, I would... I would sort of latch on to a, a certain harmonica player and try and imitate those and try and make all those licks work with everything I was doing. And, you know, so it wasn't like, oh, geez, I get, you know, I got to practice now. It was just like, that's just what I love to do. And I mean, even now, sometimes I come off the road where I've just been like playing like crazy and... I find the thing I do to relax is go into my little studio room and just start playing some music just for me. Right. Um, so at that point, is, was it mainly harmonica? Uh, harmonica and guitar. Okay. And then the harmonica, was there a point where you just thought, where you learned something and things just changed? Well, I was lucky because I got to, you know, like long before photo ID... <laughs> You could sneak into a, a bar no problem. Right. And, you know, Toronto, where I was living, you know, in my teen years, was, you know, Le Coq d'Or, the Colonial Tavern, and later the Elma Combo. They were bringing in, like, all the major blues acts. So I got to meet all my heroes that I was listening to on records. And, you know, I mean, a guy that became a really good friend was Carrie Bell. And I remember seeing him uh, at the Elma Combo. Oh, no, I saw him first at Lecoq Door. And I had just gotten his Blues Harp album on Delmark Records. And I was just knocked out by it. And I told him that and I said geez I'd be so grateful if you could just show me how to play this one song and he started saying well you know I'm at a gig I'm kind of busy and I, I said okay and I walked away and he said but I'm staying at room 419 at the Westminster Hotel if you want to stop by tomorrow so damn if I wasn't there you know nine o'clock the next morning got him out of bed you know <laughs> and uh you know I showed up with a bottle of uh rye or something and you know he would just show me stuff and what was cool about him is you know he would slow things down and 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 play things for me and you know, when I'd finally get it, he'd go, that's it. And then, you know, two minutes later, I'd try it again and I'd forget. And I'd say, Carrie, show me how to play that thing again. He'd say, man, I already showed you once. I heard you play it, so I know you can do it. So, you know, you don't need me to show you no more. When you're ready to play it, you'll play it. And I was sort of getting what he was saying, you know, like he, you know, by learning his things, I, I learned a lot of the licks. But what he was getting at is like... You, when you're actually playing and performing, you're just kind of playing from your heart and your soul. And when it's ready to come out, if it comes out, it'll come out. So your goal at this point is to, to make a living being a blues musician. Yeah. And so what did that, what band did you start with that? 
Oh, my cousin and I started a, a band called Backtrack. And, you know, I mean, we were young. We were probably 18, you know, the first gigs we had playing at the Beverly Tavern, you know, on Queen Street. And, you know, I think we were getting about $125 for the band for the weekend, which worked out to about eight bucks a night each. But we were playing in a bar. We were playing through a PA system and, uh, you know, so it started like that. And then, you know, once you're out there playing, you start meeting new people and, you know, suddenly you meet a maybe better guitar player and you start hanging around them. But I'm happy to say like that early band, I still get together every Thanksgiving. We have those guys over with their wives and actually one of them Mike Tiberis is living in Campbellford now which is closer to home for me so I see him pretty regularly it just occurred to me that I didn't introduce you <laughs> sorry about this although people would be listening to this knowing that it's you but uh, I'm speaking to Al Lerman and he's he's on his way to a gig tonight but he's stopped by to have a little conversation with me which I really appreciate to talk about his life in music. So now you're in the Toronto music scene. What was that like? And what year are we talking about? Uh, well, this was probably 72 or 73. Okay. And, you know, so I would do the Beverly Tavern and... Um, then we would mostly be on the road playing, you know, like little towns all through Ontario. And, and, you know, I remember we went to Ottawa once and played a biker bar where there was a huge fight and tables flying by and a knife pulled on somebody. And, you know, we were so silly, you know, we thought, uh, you know, somewhere we had heard the show must go on. So like, you know, I'm there playing my harmonicas, chairs are flying by and, you know, staying in the dumpiest rooms where your fire escapes, you know, a rope that you hang out the window that somebody's tied a hangman's noose on just to make you feel welcome. Uh, you know, so... so and are you thinking this is the life? Well... I just kept thinking things might get better. And, uh, and and then I remember we finally got a gig at Grossman's. And in my teeny bopper mind, I thought, wow, I've sort of hit the big time now. Like, this is, this is a major step. And, you know, because Downchild was playing there and... Uh, you know, people like that. And so, like, that was a big thrill. And, you know, like, people were liking what we were doing. And we weren't that good either, you know. <laughs> but this is mainly blues at this point. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And, you know, funny story. Like, when you're younger, you know, as a, you tend to play things a little quicker, you know. Like, you don't quite know how to be that relaxed when you're playing, you know. So... If we would do a slow blues, it would really be, you know, just a moderately medium tempo dun do 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 you know. So 
around that time, I remember going to the Colonial to see Muddy Waters, which I had seen a bunch of times. And, you know, I was getting to know those guys. And they said, you know, we got a matinee on Saturday. And, you know, we invite people up to play. You should come and play. Well, his first song was a slow blues. And it was so drop dead slow, like, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Well, I played every lick I knew within the first two seconds. We hadn't even got to the second bar of the verse. But I had an epiphany that day that, uh, wow, you really have to pick your spot and listen to what the other guys are doing and just try and weave in. And uh, and that, you know, kind of overnight, that really changed my playing you know that was one of those real big signpost uh, lessons in your musical life that you learn about you know being relaxed and you know it's not just about fitting in as many notes as you can you right. know just really play and, and and make a note last and make it say something it's amazing how i mean it just seems like some musicians still don't know that theory oh i know <laughs> But it's it's amazing that that seems like such a simple concept. It know. is, but uh, and, and effective. I know all sorts of people that not only in music but in their lives just try and complicate things to mm -hmm. no end. It's maybe that's just a personality trait or, <laughs> or flaw. <laughs> so now you're playing Grossman's and thinking you've you've hit the big time. Um, in your mind, what was what was the goal? Like, what did you imagine playing better gigs to be? Well, really, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, when I probably first saw the Beatles and Screaming Girls, I thought, you know, this would be a good thing. Yes. But, you know, quickly on, you realize that, you know, it's not about that. And, and I always had that thing in my head, you know, I don't really care about fame. You know, I don't care if people recognize me everywhere I go. I if I could just make, say what a postman makes and be able to play music as a living, it's like, I don't need much, you know, a roof over my head and, you know, a, a car, you know, I, I and, and, you know, material things. I mean, I'm living in a nice house out in the countryside and everything, and uh, I'm happy to have it. But, you know, I never dreamed of like having a mansion with a swimming pool and, you know, all that frivolous stuff. It's just like, yeah, I don't mind working hard. Just let me work hard at what I love to do. And At what point did you think that you were a musician? This is what, you, this is what you're doing for the rest of your life. Uh, I think when I was 16 and I made that decision and I just started playing all the time, I just thought, like, I just can't picture myself doing anything else and I remember you know in in high school or junior high you know like there would be days where they would individually call in the students to the guidance counselor and they'd say well you're talking about dropping chemistry now that is going to close the doors on being a pharmacist or a doctor and you know, and they would say, what do you want to do? And I, I would just say, like, well, music's really the only thing that interests me. And Well, you can't make a living at music, and you don't even take music at school, so what do you, you know? But 
and, and they just sort of gave up on me. But uh, I don't but you know. knew this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. And at what point while you were doing it did you think I've 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 reached that point where I'm doing it and I'm making a decent living and Oh, I'm not so sure. I mean I'm gonna give it another twenty years if things don't pan out I might get a day job. <laughs> You know, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, I had I had moderate successes with some of my earlier bands, you know, like Grizzly Bear and Mondo Combo in that we worked all the time. We weren't making a lot of money. Uh, when can, you, I, can you just define what working all the time was? Was it six nights a week? And Oh, yeah. The back then it was uh, Monday to Saturday plus a Saturday matinee. And, you know, you'd wait around you'd come home Sunday pretty much do your laundry and then wait for the phone call from you know your two-bit agent that would say uh yep you're uh you're playing the Windsor Hotel in Kincardine for two weeks you know and like that's that's how far up you'd be booked you'd wait till Monday morning to find the last dregs (laughs) of, of gigs that uh you might be going to but it was interesting in those days because now it's all one-nighters. But back then, you know, you'd go to a little town and people would come and check you out on Monday. And, you know, the the weekends would just be crazy. But all week you'd sort of get out and you'd meet people. And, you know, you'd, people would invite you to parties after the gig. It's like, well, where do you live? Just down the road. And then you're driving, you know, like an hour out of town. It's like, where is this place? It's... <laughs> So, um, tell me about Fathead. How did that happen? Uh, Fathead, I was in a band where I was doing all the work and getting all the bookings. And I felt that I no longer had a voice in the band. You know, we had a pretty domineering uh lead singer you know who was set in his ways and you know he was great and everything but I just felt that his vision and mine were two different things and you know he would always be you know we got to learn some ringers you know it's like we're playing these clubs like you know we should learn the new Jay Giles tune and we should learn the Stone song and I would cringe every time we played those because I, I thought we're just trying to copy something that's on the radio just because people know it and that's kind of a cheap trick and uh and then i thought you know i'm i was coming home uptight from every gig and uh i thought my wife donya would say like wow you know it's like you're not making a ton of money in that band and you come home really in a bad mood like Maybe you should think about something else. And I remember talking to Teddy Leonard once saying, I'd love just to start like a sort of bluesy roots kind of band. And if I ever did, I'd love to have you play guitar. And uh, and then I just went out and I started, I, I quit that band and I just started phoning places and I got gigs and... I sort of had, I remember I had a sheet of paper with about five guitar players on it and five singers and five bass players. And I would just call all these Toronto musicians who I either knew somewhat or 
you know, maybe you'd done a pickup gig with them or, or, or just people that I didn't know that I admired and, uh, and would hire them for, for a gig. And eventually, after about a year of that, you know, that first vers- version of Fathead was uh, playing uh, a bar that used to be there that's on Queen Street that's no longer there called Chicago's. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so good. I said, hey, I got some more gigs. Do you guys want to do that? And then finally, I just threw that piece of paper away with all the other people on it. And the next thing I knew, I had this band. And and, and calling it Fathead, that was just a temporary thing because I got the gig. And uh, Joe Reynolds from The Meteors was doing one of these gigs with me. Uh, I think the very first gig I did outside of Mondo Combo and he said what are you going to call it and I said I don't know uh, you know I, I never even thought of that and he looked down and there was a Fathead Newman album and he said well it's only for a gig why don't you call it Fathead that's a catchy name I said oh I hate the name but it's it, I guess it is easy to remember and it's seen as how it's only for one gig so I called it Fathead and then you know that name lasted for close to 25 years mm-hmm. So how did you know that this was the band that that was worth pursuing? And oh, it just, you know, sometimes magic happens on a stage. And, you know, people always assume, you know, I always get asked, like, what's your favorite gig, you know? And, and you know, like there are great things like opening for B.B. King at, in Massey Hall or playing for 10,000 people at the Montreal Jazz Festival. But you know, just as good or even better than some of those nights are just like these phenomenal nights that you have in some little out-of-the-way club where everybody's into it and the band is really on. And I mean, that's the thing. You know, a good band will always sound good, but when things click and everybody's on their game... It just goes to a, another level that, you know, I mean, it's something you can't, you can't say what makes it happen, but, you know, just like those nights when Sonny and Brownie were really both on, it's just magic happens. And I think that's when, you know, that mood just pushes you a little further where like, wow, I never played this before. I never played that right. that way before. So... Did you, did you ever consider doing like a Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee thing? Well, in a sense, I'm, you know, because these days I'm mostly going out as a solo guy yeah. playing guitar and rack harmonica. I'm kind of doing that, you know. I, I, I And I think about that. It's like I, I started out listening to, you know, the folk blues and, you know, the 1963 album Blues at Newport was a, big influence on me and you know Dave Van Ronk and John Hammond you know who were both guys I saw early on at the riverboat as well you know so I kind of think how life goes full circle you know but in I, the early years it was never it was always a band concept as opposed to a, a duo mm, acoustic thing well my friends and I we would we would get together and we would do little duo things but we weren't gigging back right. then tell me what the philosophy of Fathead because the band wasn't your typical blues band, and and it had a unique sound. Tell me what went into that, or you know what was the goal behind that band. 
Well, I love blues so much, you know, that would be the basis of it, but I didn't want to become one of those bands where, you know, you're just wearing bowling shirts and playing all the the sort of standard songs, you know, that you expect everybody to play cuz I had done that in those really early bands, you know, right. where you learn every lick off the record and you, you know, I'm where you try and be like Sonny Boy Williamson and sound like him. And, you know, eventually you think, you know what, as good as I might be able to imitate those people, I'm not them. And they did it first and they did it better than I ever would. So I thought like, well, why don't I put a band together where you know, blues is very much in the forefront that you could call it a blues band. But, you know, we're younger guys than that generation of blues players that also listen to funk music and R&B and pop music and just kind of take, like, those little elements that are in those songs and try and write songs. Uh, so that was basically the philosophy be behind Fathead. Just write songs and, and try and serve up blues a little differently. And when you look back to, you know, our, our heroes from the 50s and, and early 60s, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, their older generation would say like, you know, you guys are playing this stuff all wrong. It's all loud and everything. You know, this isn't like Charlie Patton or or, you know, Robert Johnson, you know, right. like this is, you know, you're, it would be like the equivalent of like, you guys are like a rock band, you know, Magic Sam, you know, it's like, wow, this is rock music, electric guitars and yeah. Freddie King and things like that. So we, we just thought, let's just do our own thing, our own take on, on that. And it worked. And how long did it take till you figured out that you had your own sound? Uh, Is that a fair question? Yeah. I think probably by the time we released our first album in 1995, and, you know, so the band had, had been around as that same unit for three years. So we were playing clubs. And, I mean, we were playing a lot of, uh, you know, blues cover tunes. But eventually, you know... I was writing a lot of songs. Omar Tunnock was writing a lot of songs. And, uh, and you know, because I was living in Toronto and we would get together and rehearse every week, you know, uh, we would help each other and or suggest things to each other's songs. So, you know, there was that real uh, songwriter circle thing happening that I think helped all of us. So... I might be wrong. I know that some other bands rehearse, but I don't know many other bands who rehearsed on a regular basis. And this was brought up with my interview with Chuck. Um, and I know about this, that you guys got together every week. Tell me about the thinking behind that. Well, it was just, uh, you know, some players or singers, you know, like they're more old school where like, they need to rehearse something over and over and over and get it right. And John Mays was certainly from that school, you know, coming up through, you know, he played 
with, uh, you know, the insiders that opened for James Brown, toured for James Brown, and you know James Brown didn't, yeah, we'll just get up and jam some funky stuff. <laughs> and, and, and at the time I put this band together, it was getting to the point where there weren't that many full-time bands anymore it was all like the the whole subbing thing came you know and i and i thought wow like i'm i can go to five different clubs and hear five different bands all playing mustang sally or you know in the midnight hour or whatever you know flavor of the month and i just thought you know this this is gonna get tired real quick so we just thought hey if we uh, rehearse every week we'll always just be building a repertoire and trying to claw our way out of that you know circle was it difficult to keep the band together no because i worked hard getting us work so we were working right. every week and i mean that's the biggest lure and then i like to think that you know those guys and everybody that passed through that band became family and it was it was more than just rehearsing i mean they'd come over and you know like uh when i think of it i spent a lot of my own money those first years because you know a lot of the gigs didn't pay a lot and trying to keep them i I wasn't paying myself anything or very little and you know I was buying cases of beer for all the rehearsals and my wife Danya you know who just can't have somebody come over to the house without offering them food and drink so uh, you know she was always cooking things and coming down with cakes or sandwiches or things like that so it almost got to be more of a you know, like a clubhouse atmosphere where, yeah, we did rehearse, but we spent an awful lot of time just shooting the breeze yeah. and telling stories and cracking jokes. And there's a lot of laughing <laughs> going on in between the rehearsing. But, you know, because we were doing it every week, suddenly we had all these original songs and, and, and it was a rehearse thing. And, you know, suddenly people get impressed when you know, suddenly a song takes a right angle turn and, you know, stop on a dime and give you nine cents change. You think like, wow, that is rehearsed, you know, just like James Brown's band. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, he had a lot of little shots in there that everybody hit and it sounds impressive when a whole group does that en masse. <laughs> That's a great band. I always remember that gig in, in the, at the Ottawa Blues Festival. And I was lucky enough to be there watching you guys. I don't know if it was memorable to you, but it was certainly memorable to me. And it was just something very special about that. I don't know. I've probably played there many times, but there was that one particular gig, probably around 2003 or four. That was the only time we played there. Oh, okay. It was pretty neat. Like, it was magical to me. Well, thanks. <laughs> I don't remember that gig exactly. Oh, really? But, okay. But, again, you know, I, I think when any band or performer you know you get to a certain level you're all you're never gonna stink right you know you're always gonna be passable but you know maybe that was one of those magic nights where just everybody's mood was in the right mm -hmm. space and 
things click. Can we talk about John for a second? Sure. Because I had such respect for him, and I miss him greatly. Tell me about your thoughts on John, or something. Tell me a story about John. Oh, boy. Well, he... You know, like I say, all those guys were like brothers in, in that band. And, you know, I mean, it's sad for me to lose a brother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, when... You know, when we'd go on tour, you know, like we'd all be together. But usually if it was just things within, you know, a three hour drive, he would always drive to my house and he would always get there early and, you know, uh, maybe have a drink or something before we go. And, you know, so, I mean, I just have so many great memories riding in the car and, you know, I mean, a lot of times he'd fall asleep, (laughs) Uh, but... You know, the tunes were always going in the car. Sometimes we'd just shut off the radio and, like, sing stuff together. And, you know, I mean, I learn a lot about harmony singing from him. But, you know, I think the biggest thing with John, he was such a, you know, besides being a a sweet person that everybody loved, is, you know, he was such a good singer and I remember Levon Helm saying this about Richard Manuel in, in the band. He said, you know, having somebody out front that could deliver your songs, you know, with a voice like that, it just gave you that extra confidence, you know, to think that, yeah, you are something, you know, you mm-hmm. are just as good as a lot of other bands out there. So, that's my take on... Well, he was special. I, he used to call me every so often just to say hello. And I always found that, you know, he would just have um, slow time at work or whatever and just said, I just thought I'd call and say hello. And we'd have this little conversation. And I thought that spoke volumes to the kind of person he was. Um, was there a chance of ever reuniting Fathead? Or is it because John is not around that that's an impossible thing? You know, the the last year we did a bunch of gigs without him, you know, because he was too sick to do them. And, and I had called up all the uh, promoters and I said, listen, our singer's not doing well. If you want to cancel us, that's I'm cool with that. But if you want to hire us, we're coming with one less guy, but you got to pay us the same and we're sending his money home. And they everybody said, wow, that's great come and do that and you know so we we did things like you know i remember we played the wasega beach blues fest and i mean i did most of the singing and you know omar would sing sing a few songs every set and papa john would sing maybe a song a, a set or two and we were getting all these compliments saying like wow we didn't know all you guys sang we only heard you sing backup behind john but you know certainly no slight against John, but they said, this is still a great band, even without him. But after 25 years, and I'll admit it was getting harder to book a five-piece band, Mm. and, um, you know, like the whole touring thing is just getting so hard to do. It just seemed like a good time to take a rest. And, uh, you know, I mean, we left on good terms. I mean, Omar lives close to me. I, uh, I've been trying to get him over. Come on, Omar, let's just 
play some tunes. Let's write some stuff. Let's just play and have some fun. And it hasn't happened yet, but, uh, you know, because everybody kind of gets into their own thing. He's very busy with his art right mm-hmm. now. And, you know, I, I know what that's like because my wife does that. And uh, I see how busy and time-consuming that is. But, uh, you know... I mean, he was over at the house. We had a few people over for dinner, and that was nice just hanging out. And I still call the fathead guys every couple of weeks just to see how they're doing. Well, it's good to know. Tell me about the transition of having this band that was together for that many years that got together every week to becoming a solo artist. Well, it was somewhat transitional because... When I, f- when my wife and I first started having that bug in our head about moving out of the city, I knew that, you know, in between Fathead, I would do these pickup gigs that, you know, usually pl- paid, you know, a hundred bucks, you know, that was the going rate. And I knew that I couldn't rely on pickup gigs to, I, I can't drive a five hour return trip for a hundred dollars, so... I forced myself to, you know, to start doing it. And I, you know, guitar is something that I've, I've always played and I write on guitar and early on before I played saxophone, I did play guitar in bands, but I never really worked at it. You know, I wasn't a a guy like Teddy Leonard or Papa John King or Darren Poole that, you know, just someone that's going to impress people a lot when they play but you know I mean I can sort of hold my own in my own crude (laughs) uneducated guitar way Uh, and all throughout your musical life you were playing guitar it's not like you just picked it up recently again oh no I've always played it at at home and like I say that's my writing tool so you know when we decided that you know one day we would like to move out to the country I figured out I'm going to have to be able to be self-sufficient and not rely on anybody. So I started uh, forcing myself to go out and do guest spots with other bands and learning tunes and just working on it. And uh, And I was doing that while Fathead was going on. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I was... I had quite a few gigs under my belt, you know, by the time, by the time I folded Fathead, you know, I had already been doing it for probably 10 years or 12 years on the side. And now it was just time to, uh, okay, well, this is my only, or my, this is now my major chunk of income. So I just got to book myself into more and more places and seen as how I've always been the guy that gets the work I know how to hustle work and how to promote myself and you know luckily it's working out okay how how different is your approach to performing as a soloist uh, as opposed to being in a band it's a lot it's a lot harder musically in that you know when you do a solo show first of all you're driving to the gig yourself you're loading all the equipment yourself you're singing all the songs, you're the timekeeper, you're the guy that's dealing with getting paid, you're the guy dealing with selling your merch, and you're the guy that tears everything down by yourself and carries it all out by yourself. 
and books your own hotel and carries all the stuff to the hotel. And if you stop any of that, like if you stop talking, if you want to take a sip of water during your show, there's dead air. Right. So in that sense, it's horrible. And I really miss a band on horrible nights you know where nobody's listening you know you just think wow I'm just like wallpaper here you know at least if there was a band here we could be doing some goofy things because you know in in Fathead we would always play little quotes of things to amuse each other you know on off nights you know try and get somebody to catch your musical joke and crack a smile so you know that I miss But on the other hand, and uh, by no means was there any problems in Fathead, but as a band leader, you're constantly hurting Mm -hmm. people, you know, well, we're here now and now we have to go here and we have to do this. And, you know, to get people all on the same schedule is not the easiest thing, you know, like getting four grown men to go where you need at the time you need to. And, and, you know, just the responsibility of like, wow, I'm kind of on the hook for like, these guys are relying on me to get them money so they can live and pay their bills. So, you know, uh, I don't miss that at all. I, I like the freedom of being on my own but, uh, you know, ideally I could have both and somebody book them both. Mm-hmm. But I know that, uh, you know, that, that's so hard to do. Do, do you miss playing in a band? Yes. Like, uh, you still get to do that with the Maple Blues Band. Oh, yeah. And, I, you, know, I, you know, next week I'm playing with Brant Parker's band and Thorold and Hamilton. So, I mean, I get to go out and do lots of band gigs or, you know, sometimes I'll do a duo with uh, Rick Fines or Morgan Davis, Lance Anderson, you know, but uh, I find, you know, playing with other players and I always like to think in, in any band I've been in that everybody else is a better musician than I am and that always inspires you to... To be better, you know, and to relate that to the solo thing, uh, it's harder to progress because you're not bouncing stuff off people. My only thing is see how songs go over with an audience. And, you know, sometimes I write songs and I play them a couple times and I go, well, maybe the song's not strong enough or maybe I need to rewrite this or think about a different groove or maybe I'm just not playing it or maybe I just haven't settled into playing it properly. Hmm. Um, Does does the writing, obviously it's different when you used to write for a band versus writing for yourself. But how do you approach that? How how do you approach writing a new song knowing that it's just for yourself? Well, to approach writing, I mean... I'm not like one of those Nashville guys that can, you know, go into a studio and write four songs every day and break for lunch and, you know, write a few more after lunch, you know. I kind of wait for the muse to hit and, you know, mercifully it 
hits enough that I have enough material for an album every couple of years. But, uh, you know, with a band and a singer like John Mays, who was such a great singer, I had more freedom because I could write some things that I wouldn't be able to sing, mm -hmm. you know, just because, you know, his chops were were so much superior to, to mine as a singer. But then there's different kinds of singers, you know. I mean, you know, there's like the Aretha Franklins and the Wilson Pickett's and the Jackie Wilson's, you know, that someone like John Mays would be like one of those kinds of singers. And then there's, you know, a lot of the older blues guys and, you know, guys like Dr. John, like, would you say Dr. John has a great voice? It's like, he does to me, mm -hmm. uh, but he's, he's not like, you know, it, it, I think it's more being able to put a song across and there's a lot of songs that I've written, like a song like Blue Water, which is probably one of my favorite tunes. I mean, I don't think I... I would do that song justice, you know, where, you know, John Mays really took that to another level. Because, right. I mean, he just slinging obligados all over the place, uh, you know. So you I, don't play that song at all? No. But if I did, I would probably have to change the key and, and it would... Uh, it, it, it would have a, uh, a sort of smaller spectrum of mm -hmm. emotion through it so I just don't do it you know I, I have to write things that I think I can uh, pull off that people believe when I'm singing and it always amazes me when you know because really to me I think I'm I think I'm a good harmonica player that also sings plays guitar and plays saxophone and you know and a lot of times I get compliments like man, you are such a great singer. I just love your voice and you're pretty good on the harmonica too. But, you know, I guess, I guess that's good that, you know, like it's uh, because I'm very self-conscious of, uh, you know, my own singing or, or my own guitar playing for that matter and my saxophone playing. But uh, if people seem to like it, then, well, maybe I'm not there yet, but I'm doing something right. Does it bother you? Like a song like Blue Water, which is a beautiful song, and it's, you know, it's one of those staples of the, of the Fathead catalog, the fact that it doesn't get played anymore? Like, I mean, it's one of your babies, right? Uh, yeah, but you know what? I'm, I'm really happier to play anything new because, mm -hmm. it, because it is new. And if I do play older songs, I try and do a slightly different spin on them because, you know, I don't want to play stuff that's a museum piece. I want to keep moving forward. And, you know, funny thing, we're talking about, you know, how the muse hits. I swear every time I do an album and then like a few months go by and I haven't had like an inkling of a song idea... You know, I ask myself, like, well, maybe this is it. The well's gone dry. Like, there's, <laughs> you know, and and this last spell, you know, because I released my Slow Burn album uh, in June of 2016, and it's now uh, fall of 2017, 
and there must have been six months gone by where like I just didn't write anything and I really thought well maybe this is it the well's gone dry but uh all of a sudden something happens you get all of a sudden one song comes to you and, and you feel like wow this is a really strong song and then the next thing you know the next week you got this other idea and you know so now it's just trying to find the time to uh be at home and work on these things does do you have a goal for your solo career like well again if i can just keep uh, working and paying the bills and having fun, I'm happy. I mean, I certainly with Fathead, you know, we had worked our or clawed our way up to getting into, you know, some of the top festivals mm-hmm. and concert halls. Juno winner. And yeah, winning Junos. And uh, certainly a lot of pe- more people know the name Fathead than they do Al Lerman. You know, and I do get some festivals on my own, but it's a lot harder booking myself that hasn't been a known entity for the last 25 years like Fathead has. But, uh, you know, so sometimes I'm doing gigs that aren't the greatest gigs, but I still think in the grand scheme of things, like, well, this is still better for me than doing some job that I would just hate, you know, at least. And I use those gigs to try out the new songs and work on them. And places where people aren't listening, I might play those new songs two or three times in a night just to try and bang them into shape. (laughs) So my last question to you would be, you know, from that little kid who's 11, 12, or 16, who decided that he wanted to become a musician, to the man that you are now, and, and all the different forms that you've taken, tell me how you look back on your musical career. Because it couldn't have been easy all the time. There must have been some tough times. There, it was mostly tough times, and there still are tough times, but this is the path that I chose, and I, I can't think of anything that else that I would rather do. And, uh, I mean, I still want to get better, you know. And I think one of the reasons I play a a few instruments is because I hear things that sound so good to me. I just, you know, want to be able to know how to do that. You know, somebody that, you know, fixes cars and, you know, like grew up, you know, wrenching vehicles and stuff. Like, they just like the knowing how motors work and you know so they're always taking things apart and putting them back together this is what turns my crank so i just keep doing it and do you still love music i sure do still keeps you going well thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate you got a long drive ahead of you and uh many many hours of gigging and all that so i appreciate you dropping by my pleasure and i i love talking blues thanks (laughs) 